morning, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to take you through a little bit of uh, some historical context in the scripture and looking at the Christmas story as we move towards Christmas. We find ourselves in the season of Advent. Advent is not Christmas. Advent is the approach to Christmas. Advent is a season of waiting, longing, and for many, it becomes like a prophetic lament. But it's a time for us to be quiet, to slow down, especially in a culture that is ramping up. So our culture is ramping up and getting busier and busier and louder and louder, and the way of Jesus is to get quieter and quieter and discern what God is doing in our midst. So that's the invitation of Advent. When I look at the scriptures, one of the things that I love to do is look at patterns. How does God work throughout history? Because patterns can tell us a lot about the nature of God, the characteristics of God, so patterns matter, and I want to look at some consistent patterns and ways that I see God working and bringing his redemptive plan into history and into the world. We begin in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the first command that God gives to humanity is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, isn't that an awesome command? A command rooted in pleasure. So God's first command is a pleasurable command to be fruitful to multiply, to bring life into the earth, to participate in the beauty of bringing life into the earth. Then by chapter three, things go sideways rather quickly. And from chapter three all the way up to chapter 11, humanity just begins to spin in chaos. And because humanity makes a decision to go out on their own and to take matters into their own hands, humanity begins to spin in this relentless pursuit of a chaotic involvement in the world. Then by chapter 12, God comes to a particular character named Abraham that we talked about last week. And he comes to Abraham and essentially says in chapter 12, Abraham, do you see all the chaos in the world? I wanna do something about the chaos. I don't wanna be a God who stands outside of it. I wanna be a God that moves into the chaos and I wanna bring hope and healing into that chaos. And I'm gonna do it through your family line. One of your descendants is going to be in the messianic line. So through your seed, through your family, the Messiah is eventually going to come into history and redeem the entire cosmos. So God makes this promise to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah, and then to Sarah, she's excited, and yet God closes her womb so she can't bear children. So how is this going to work? God makes a promise, be fruitful and multiply, makes the extension to Abraham and Sarah, we're going to bring the redemptive plan through your line, and then he closes her womb and makes it seem like an impossible situation. Later on in history, he opens her womb in his own timing, and God's timing is always slow. <laughs> right? You're laughing because you know it's true. God's timing apparently is not on the same time structure as ours. So God has to intervene. God intervenes, brings the promised child through Abraham and Sarah. Later on in life, they bring Isaac into the world, and Isaac is in the line and lineage of Jesus. Now, Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca. And again, Rebecca, through this family, the promised son is going to come, but he closes Rebecca's womb. Almost seems like, what, are you playing games with us? This seems a bit like a cruel joke. So for 19 years, Rebecca's womb is closed and the promised child, it seems like it may have stopped. 
Isaac then prays, cries out to God. God responds, opens her womb, and gives her twins. She gets like a double portion. So in her womb, she brings forth these beautiful boys into the world, and one of them is in the line of Jesus. So again, God commands fruitfulness, and fruitfulness happens because the promise is fulfilled, even though God has to intervene in both Sarah's life and now Rebecca's life. Jacob marries two women. The, one of the sons that came out in the, into the world marries two women, which is a whole other sermon in the future that we'll have to do. That's problematic. But he marries two women, um, Rachel and Leah, and he, he loves one of them and doesn't love the other one. Now, that creates some problems in and of itself. Rachel is the one that he loves, and Rachel is barren. She can't bring children into the world. So Leah is unloved, and guess how God chooses to come into the world? Through Leah, the unloved. In fact, it says in Genesis chapter 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Again, a theme. Leah, the unloved one, Leah, the one that was on the outside, the unloved is the one that God moved towards. So what seems like an impossible situation, what seems like God is just closing one avenue off and opening up another, he enters in through the unloved woman. And it's that unloved woman that God can't seem to resist. That person who's on the outside of positions of power or influence, it seems like God can't resist that one, so he moves toward that person because he can't resist an unloved heart. He can't resist an unloved woman. Then we get to the genealogy of Jesus. If you want a fascinating read, begin in Matthew chapter one. It's a whole lineage of how we get to the Messiah, the promised child that came into the world to redeem all things. Now it's interesting, if you look at the lineage of Jesus, it's quite a list. There's, there's a, lot, a whole lot of mess going on in this list. For example, you have a woman in the lineage of Jesus named Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. And she had two Israelite spies and yet believed in Yahweh, Israel's God, in the Old Testament. And because of this, her and her entire family are spared when Jericho is captured and Rahab has a place in the line and the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus' uh, genealogy also mentions a woman named Tamar. She's interesting. A widow who poses as a prostitute, you see a theme, and slept with her father-in-law in order to become pregnant and produces an heir. And despite this controversy, her and her son are in the lineage of Jesus. Oh, it gets more interesting. David, he's the youngest of his brothers, the weakest, uh, the least unlikely to succeed in a sense based on cultural expectations of who are supposed to be in positions of power. He is selected as the king of Israel. The story gets more interesting. David then moves into life, moves into a position of power, and sees another man's wife and moves towards this woman named Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, and then has that, man's, that man killed, her husband. And because of his act of adultery, he gets Bathsheba pregnant. She bears David a child. That child dies David marries Bathsheba. They have another son, and his name is Solomon. And Solomon is a bit of a hot mess as well. In spite of all the controversy and the lack of trust and people saying, uh, I, don't, I don't know if God's way is the best way. Let's see if we can kick this thing into gear. God's plan of redemption and salvation comes into the world through all of this brokenness, chaos, 
a mess. Now that should give you all in the room a lot of hope, right? A lot of hope to think this is how God works. This is his plan of redemption to redeem the entire cosmos is through imperfect, seemingly ordinary people on the outside of power and influence. And what I love about God and one of the consistent themes that I see is that God always makes the first move. It's up to us to respond to that move, but I think God is the one who always initiates and makes the first move. He moves towards the unloved. He moves towards those in the margins. He's not limited by our mistakes and our missteps. He moves towards those things because you can't take God and put God in a nice box of doctrine and say, this is how God works. We can't do that. Because God is mysterious and he's always changing and he's moving and he's evolving and slipping and all kinds of things are are happening in the world and yet somehow this God of love continues to work with humanity. And then to top it all off, he brings in his son of redemption through an unwed teenage mother. A family scandal is how God comes into the world. Now, Jesus comes into the world during a specific time in history when Herod was in a power of influence and political power. So Herod is the king, and the religious institution was filled with uh, all sorts of power. There's, so religion and politics had meshed together, and it had become this big mess. And then Jesus is born in the shadow of Herod's greatness and influence. So who is this Herod? We hear about this Herod in the story, in the Christmas story. And who is this person? What is his position in the story. Now, to give you a little context, Herod um, had built a temple during his reign, this magnificent temple. He actually constructed his own mountain and then put his temple on top of the mountain as a picture of what power and influence actually looked like. His, his temple, his building, covered 45 acres of land. So it could have been storehouses and farms and barns and all sorts of places, but his temple was uh, immersed in 45 acres of property. Then beyond that, there were 200 acres of palace grounds that the actual temple stood on. So you can just see how vast and huge this massive temple was. The temple itself stood 90 feet high. The higher the building, the more power there is, right? You see it when you look at any cityscape line. It's always who has the highest building. A sign of power and influence. Our building is higher than your building. So Herod builds this giant monstrosity of a building. This is what power looked like. This is what influence looks like. Now about three miles outside of the Herodian temple was a little town called Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Word had sped through the region that a king, a king of the Jews, had been born, and now things are beginning to get interesting. The people were expecting to meet a king, somebody that was going to come in and set everything back into the right, and yet this king, this Messiah, was born in a small, quiet place. Think about that for a moment. The king of the universe born in a small, quiet place. You think about the patterns and how God brought the promised child into the world, outside of political power, outside of religious power, in comes the king. Now Bethlehem was full of farmers and shepherds and carpenters, uh, seemingly insignificant people, people that weren't of power and influence. Now let's back up for a moment in the story and go back to Genesis. This woman, Rebecca, has two sons. 
And inside of her womb, we have Jacob and Esau, and it says that in her womb, these two wrestled. So there's a wrestling going on between these two. These two sons actually represent two different nations. And these two nations were at conflict with one another later in the story. In fact, in Genesis 25, 23, it says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Esau, the oldest of the twins, eventually founded the nation of Edom. Jacob, who is deceitful and a liar and all sorts, and he's just a mess. He's the founder of Israel. Again, God's plan, brilliant. And these two nations are in conflict with one another all throughout the Old Testament. You'll see the Edomites and the Israelites at war with one another. And then a prophet rose up, and a prophet began to speak about what's going to happen in the future. And this gave the people of God great hope, especially centered around this particular king that we read about in Matthew. In Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 through 18, it says, I see him, but not now. I I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. Now imagine that message coming to a community of people who were oppressed. That gives you great hope that God is going to eventually make all these things right. Jesus comes into the world, not through power, but through the outside. And as Jesus comes into the world, he's born during the time of Herod, Herod the Great. Herod was an Edomite. Isn't it interesting that an Edomite is in a position of power and influence over Israel and over all the nation? Herod's uh, political uh, influence dominated Israel's way of thinking. His very temple overshadows Bethlehem, the place that Jesus is born among animals, among the poor, among the peasant and the outsider. And you think about the promise given to Abraham that God is going to bring a child through Sarah, but I'm going to wait until she's 90 to do it because this is how I work. I work slowly, patiently, but I always work. I will come. I will hold my promise. And he does this through the most unlikely act possible. And then he decides to bring Jesus into the world when the Edomites are in a position of power. Isn't that interesting? In fact, in Matthew 20, chapter 2, verse 3, listen to what it says. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, isn't it amazing how one sentence can pretty much, he's afraid, he's troubled, he's disturbed. Why? Because he knows, hey, when people of influence and power, especially insecure, powerful people, when their throne gets threatened, what do they do? They enforce more power. And they're like, we're going to go out and we're going to eliminate all the babies. We're going to go out and we're going to eliminate any, any sort of influence that this might have against our own kingdom. And when you stand back and you look at how all of this is being played out on the stage, Herod had all of the political control, and Jesus and his family had none. Herod was remembered as a baby killer, and Jesus is remembered as the one who changes human history. These two are remembered for something. One, baby killer. The other, the one who changes human history. And yet, his plan for changing human history is so different than Herod's plan for changing human history. 
Jesus' plan, his way is to bless our enemies, to love those who persecute us. We win through love, not through persecution. We win through uh, weakness, not through strength. In fact, in the kingdom of God, we say weak is actually the new strong. And we choose the way of weakness. In fact, Jesus talks about his kingdom and how it looks on the earth and how it works in the earth. This is what it looks like when God is at work. It's like seeds falling to the ground. And you look at them and think, how in the heck is that like the kingdom of God? Wait, they will grow in time. Or it's like bread rising in an oven. Eventually, it will grow, but it's going to take time, and you can't push it, and you can't make it happen. I make it happen, but watch and wait. Be patient. Be slow. It will come. And God says, my kingdom actually comes through unloved women, through scandal, through all of these people on the outside. You think you keep looking for power in the inside. It's actually on the outside in the corners of humanity. And this is how I choose to bring forth my plan of redemption into the world. You think about where God's power lives in our society today and where we see it most alive and most at work. Think about when God chose to break, he chose to break into human history. He did it as a vulnerable baby. It wasn't the Pharisees who were in the religious center that were able to discern what God was doing. It wasn't the scribes. It wasn't those people who are the professional experts in prophetic scripture. They weren't the ones who were able to discern what God was doing in the world. Instead, it was pagan stargazers and peasant shepherds who discerned what God was doing. Huh, controversial, different. They were not the experts. They were not the reactionaries at the loud center of religious noise. They were quiet people out on the edges, deep in contemplative thought. Quiet, calm, watching, waiting. Question, where do you find yourself among these groups of people? Among the religious center, among the scribes and the experts that are able to discern, or the ones who are quiet on the outside, deep in contemplative thought, watching, waiting. What is God doing? Because God is always acting. God is always birthing something because that's the nature of God. God is always birthing something new, always bringing something into our lives. So if you think that God isn't at work in your life, look at the way that God has worked throughout history. He comes in time, but he's about to work in your life and in your story. Waiting for God to act is what we get to do during Advent. And actually, waiting for God to act is actually waiting for your own soul to become quiet enough and contemplative enough to discern what God is doing in the obscure and the forgotten corners. Far from the, the corners of influence and power or wherever you think the action is. I was reminded this week something very important that God not only gives birth to things all the time and he's always at work, but we want God to act in the imperial capital of Rome, but God first acts in a stable on the edge of Bethlehem. We want God to act in Washington, D.C., but God first acts in the quiet corner of your own living room. Are we stopping long enough to pay attention to what God is doing right now in our midst? Look at history. It seems like God always works in the small corners of society in the quiet, unassuming ways. And when Herod, who is the the pinnacle of power and influence, when he built his temple, this mighty temple, he constructed his own mountain and then put the temple on top of the mountain as a sign of power and influence. It has these commanding views to the north, south, east, and west. In fact, 
Herod, at one point when he was building this beautiful temple, there was a mountain not too far that was obstructing his view. And so he had half of the mountain removed and tossed into the ocean. So the way that Herod removed a mountain was through slavery and through force. This is how you move mountains. I think Jesus might have something to say to that. Something. Herod moved a mountain. Put this up against the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And all it takes is just a little flicker of faith, according to Jesus, just a flicker. And if you're like me, sometimes all you've got is maybe a flicker, and that's about the best you can do. But if you have just a flicker of faith, just a flicker of hope, God can act and move through that flicker. In fact, that flicker is all that is needed in order for us to participate in what God is doing in the world. But man, we want the big flame. We want the elaborate thing. When God says, I work in small, seemingly quiet spaces, far off in the corners of society, are you paying attention? Not through power, not through these big obstructions, not through this massive temple, but for Jesus to say, friends, with just a little flicker of faith, you can say to this mountain, be moved, be thrown into the ocean, and it will happen. He's laying down the gauntlet on Herod. I mean, Jesus was, was a bad man, pajama. To be able to say that to Herod, right? This is what power actually looks like, and how I'm going to do it is through weakness, through love, through humility, through laying down my life for the sake of another, through washing feet, through coming and serving the peasant and the immigrant and the outsider. How I'm going to do it is I'm going to go to all the kinds of people that you say I can't go to, and I'm going to go to those people. And I'm going to touch, and I'm going to heal, and I'm going to bring the word of promise and redemption because through my lineage, it's just a big, hot mess. But through that lineage, the promises of God are fulfilled and brought into the world. God can take anything, any situation that you've done, anything in your life, and he can turn that into something absolutely beautiful. So there's hope for you, and there's hope for me, that God can and will act. But I am reminding you that the way of power comes through seemingly small, insignificant, little quiet spaces. And this is how the kingdom of God is revealed I want to to read something to you in closing out of Philippians chapter 2. This is the posture of a Jesus follower. This is what we get to do and how we get to live and be in the world. This is the invitation, Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, although he could have. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, it was God who exalted him, not Jesus. God exalts him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God our Father. Amen.